Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. everyone. I'm Paul Edwards, host of Tuesday Topics, and I really appreciate everybody being with us this evening. I am excited about tonight's program because I'm going to get the opportunity to uh, talk to someone who I have known for a long time, but we've been out of touch for a long time. Her name is Dr. L. Penny Rosenblum, and I'm going to begin uh, by asking Penny to tell us a little bit about herself. Now, I know, Penny, that, that you are a, a person with partial vision, and, and um, has, has that always been? Did you start out with partial vision, or did it happen along the way? Yeah, Paul. Um, first off, thanks for inviting me to ACB and um, for Tuesday Topics. I'm excited to be here. And I actually was born with low vision, and that's because my mom, when she was pregnant with me in the mid-1960s, most likely contracted rubella. So I was born with congenital cataracts and developed nystagmus. And now as a 50-something-year-old, I'm you know, kind of doing the glaucoma thing. So definitely have always experienced the world of low vision. Mm-hmm. And mainstreamed all the way through school? Yes. Um, I grew up in New Jersey. I always like to tell people I'm a product of the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and went to public school all the way through and then ran around and did a couple different colleges um, mm-hmm. as an adult. And you went into the field of, of visual impairment, I think. Yes. Right. So I initially wanted to be a teacher of children um, with back then we said mental retardation, but today we would say children with intellectual disabilities, much nicer. And Mm -hmm. my freshman year, I attended uh, Flagler College in St. Augustine, Florida, not knowing that the school for the deaf and blind was down the street. So when Mm -hmm. I signed up for a volunteer opportunity, like, you know, all freshman special ed majors um, were required to do, I thought, oh, that sounds nice, a school for the blind. Hmm, I'll go over there. And I very quickly realized I had a lot of empathy and could really identify with a lot of the experiences the children were having. So switched the major and headed up to Pennsylvania to Kutztown and became a teacher of visually impaired students in 1986. Mm-hmm. And ended up not, not teaching in schools for a long time, right? Right. So Paul, I, I taught in Pennsylvania for a couple of years and, and, had older children and then they gave me a three-year-old and I thought how how could the mom have missed that this child had a visual impairment because she was a twin so that got me interested in early childhood special ed did a master's in that um ended up in Charleston South Carolina in the early 90s teaching um what was supposed to be a preschool class but some of the children happened to be in bodies of eight and ten year olds and was doing that and enjoying it, but realized I could make a bigger difference in the lives of uh, children with visual impairments if I helped to prepare high quality teachers. So I went on to pursue my doctorate at the University of Arizona in the mid 1990s and finished that up in 1997. Then I was faculty at Florida State for two years and then 20 years at the University of Arizona before joining the American Foundation for the Blind at the beginning of 2020 as the director of research. Excellent. Um, 
how do you think your your visual impairment has informed the way that you've operated? You know, that's a great question. And I think it's um, one worth saying that sometimes I forget I'm a person with low vision. I, you know, very much think of myself in my professional role first. And then it, it is kind of nice that I have that personal perspective, though, of course, all of our personal perspectives, excuse me, all of our personal perspectives vary based on our own experiences. But some of the topics I've gotten interested in researching, such as social skills or non-driving, definitely have come out of my own personal experiences and as far as things that have challenged me or interested me and I've wanted to learn more about. So let's talk just a bit about some of the research projects you've been involved in, because I know you've published quite a few papers. Um, Tell us about some of them, because some of the topics were interesting. Okay, so you're talking about some of the topics before I joined AFB and the main topic we're talking about today. All right. Well, that's great. Thanks so much. Um, So one of the topics that really has interested me is social skills and how especially children who acquire their visual impairment at or near birth, learn to navigate a social world that is is primarily set up for people with vis- who are typically sighted, not for people with visual impairments. So my dissertation research looked at friendships of adolescents. Um, as somebody who's always been a non-driver, um, So my father owned and operated a driving school, Paul, and he actually let me behind the wheel many times. Um, My husband gets very nervous and has only let me behind the wheel like three or four times in 20 years on dirt roads. Um, But, you know, how in a society where it's just assumed that one drives, I mean, think about these COVID-19 drive-through test sites. Um, How how do we prepare youth to be successful non-drivers? How do we support people who've driven for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and are making that transition to non-driver, maybe because of age-related macular degeneration or glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy. So I've done research both with children with visual impairments around non-driving topics and with older adults um, around that. And it actually led to a great video called Reclaiming Independence, which focuses on helping adults over age 50 um, figure out how they're going to get around when they have to give up the car keys. That's, that's, a, that's a really cool video. I, did, I didn't know it was out there. Um, American Printing House for the Blind. It's getting a little old, but it is there. Oldie but goodie. Well, I think it is an oldie but goodie. And I suspect some of our members will actually go and look for it. Um, that's exciting. Um, now, you don't see well enough to drive yourself, or do you? Nope. Um, only if somebody lets me on a dirt road and wants to take a chance with their vehicle. Um, otherwise, my main forms of transportation are bicycling and walking, Uber yep. pre-COVID, um, city yep. bus pre-COVID. <laughs> yep. Yep. Interesting. All right. So Penny approaches her golden years of retirement. And it's and it's 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 time to say goodbye to university life and faculty, and then she gets an offer she can't refuse uh, <laughs> to go to work for AFB as director of research, um, which is pretty exciting. But not only are you going to work for AFB as director of research, but you're going to work with with I assume pretty quickly uh, a a decision to do perhaps the most important survey that's been done for people who are visually impaired 
in the last 20 years. So tell us how that survey came about. Sure. And, and tell us a little bit about your involvement. How, how, how did you get approached by them to take this thing over? So let's, let's all go back to March. That's when, mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of on the news and numbers were starting to pick up. We had some nursing homes in the Northwest where people were having COVID and we were all still trying to figure out, you know, where to buy a mask from and toilet paper mm -hmm. wasn't on the shelves. Um, IRA, which is a visual interpreting service that many listeners probably have used themselves, Mm -hmm. noticed a change in why people were seeking their services um, as February went into March. Um, people were saying, you know, my social distancing from somebody. Can you tell me if the people on the bus have a mask on? Um, nobody's coming to my house anymore. My, my, you know, volunteer isn't coming because we're staying six feet apart. And can you read my mail with me? And so um, Troy Otio, the CEO of IRA, did a little internal survey of about 250 of their customers and really saw some differences and wanted to, to ramp it up, so to speak. So he reached out to Dr. Kirk Adams, who's the CEO of AFB, and said, hey, you know, you guys be interested in like, you know, doing a little survey together? Well, the little survey morphed into a giant survey um, called Flatten Inaccessibility. And between March 24th and April 3rd, we got it up online. We wrote it. We got it up online. Uh, we cl cleared um, getting human subjects approval, which also takes some time. Got an advertising campaign together. We had 16 organizations, including IRA and AFB, organizations and companies behind it. So it was tweeted. It was blogged. It was emailed to people. And um, lo and behold, once the data were cleaned up, we ended up with 1,921 U.S. adults with visual impairments who shared their experiences at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. And, and ACB, by the way, was one of the sponsors. Yes, they are. And that was terrible for me not to, to thank our friends at ACB. Um, so... The, the survey was actually huge. It was divided into 10 categories. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the categories. Sure. So let me start by explaining that when you came into the survey, you were basically asked some real basic demographic information, you know, all that stuff we all expect, you know, how old are you, what's your gender. Um, then you were asked about your technology use. Do you have a smartphone? Do you have the internet at home? Um, are you having trouble getting access to COVID-19 information? So those were more or less required sections that we didn't force people to answer those questions. Everybody was presented with them. After that, you went into the next, um, the rest of the survey, which for each section you were asked, hey, healthcare, um, are you having issues around healthcare because of COVID-19 and would you answer some questions? Are you, ha you know, yes, I'll answer the questions. Um, yes, I'm having issues, but no, thank you. I don't wanna answer healthcare questions or no, I'm not having any healthcare concerns. So for each of the topics, people were given three choices. So the topics were healthcare, transportation, social, um, social interactions, access to meals, food and supplies, your education, education of a child K to 12 that you, know, you were responsible for, employment and voting. Excellent. Um, and I'll, I know I did probably 90% of the survey, even if I wasn't having problems, I felt like 
answering the questions in each section would would provide more information. So I probably I I can't I can't remember if I did the employment one or not because I am retired now. Um, you you would have been kicked out, that. Paul, when you said you yeah. were retired. We yeah, um right. we had a lot of logic to kind of direct people based on their answers. Right. right. So I I think I didn't do that one, but I think I did all the others. Um, and and the questions were interesting. So be, before we kind of before we 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 actually look at the pros and cons of the survey, let's let's look at some of the results because. While there was some um, preliminary data that was published in July, last week, I think, um, the report for flattening accessibility uh, actually was published. Um, so why don't we, I'll let you choose, but I was thinking we might just, we might just choose to, to look at the, the kind of highlight results from each of those sections and, and perhaps sure. what the findings were. Well, it's a big report. Um, first off, let me tell listeners where you can go to get the report. You can go to afb.org forward slash flatten inaccessibility. And or you can go to flattenaccessibility.com. So um, either way, it's going to take you to the report that's available as a fully accessible PDF for download. And it's also available um, on the website by section. So for example, if you're really interested in healthcare, you can go directly to the healthcare section. And the reason I wanna point that out is, let's say you're frustrated with telehealth, which um, some of our participants were, and you wanna let your doctor's office know, hey, I'm not the only person that's experiencing challenges with telehealth. This is an issue for people with visual impairments. You can point your doctor's office right to that telehealth section. And we also have a blog post about five ways that you can use the Flatten and Accessibility Report. So we don't just want it sitting on your, um, your bookshelf, so to speak, not that any of us print anything anymore. Um, we really want folks using the survey um, to make change um, for whatever is important to them or their organization like ACB. So, so you want me to chat about these different sections, Paul? Is that what I'm hearing? That is what you're hearing. That is what I'm hearing. All right. So that means I have to actually open up the report and visit with you all. So a couple of <laughs> things I want to let you know is our, our sample was primarily white, older women. Um, and this is a little concerning because, as we all know, there are other people besides white, older women who experience visual impairments. So one of our takeaways from this um, project, and also another project, Paul, you and I are going to talk about here in a bit around um, access to education for children with visual impairments, is yeah. as a field, we must, must, must do a better job of recruiting people from diverse backgrounds. Um, but let's focus on our 1,921 people. 65% um, of these folks um, reported that they were blind and 35% had low vision. Um, we asked a question about, you know, do you have an additional disability that concerns you as far as COVID goes? And 43% of people said they did, with the most common being diabetes, hearing impairment, and psychiatric disorders. Um, so that's just a couple little, um, you know, things to let you know. Over 92% of people had a smartphone. So this was a really high-tech 
oriented group, um, which again, you know, concerns us because we know that many people who have a visual impairment are not tech users, whether they don't have access to the tech, whether they don't have the skills, whether they don't have the finances. Um, this was also, as we're coming up on the voting season, 91% of people reported that they were uh, registered voters. So um, glad, glad to know that. Uh, so th those are some kind of, of the demographic um, background. That 91% is actually higher than the national average yes. for everybody else, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so I guess what I want to say to our listeners is um, we, need, we need to recognize that this is a really large sample and we have a wealth of information. But at the same time, we also need to recognize that the scamp sample is skewed towards white women who are technology users who you know are involved in their communities as registered voters um, and also that we have um, a high number of people who are um, are retired so 25 percent of the sample were folks who were retired so just to keep just to keep a few things in mind, but I know that's not really what you want me to talk about. <laughs> no, no, it is, but the, we, we can talk about this stuff now because it, it, it's significant, I think. Um, do, do you guys have any thoughts about why younger folks didn't choose to respond to the survey? A couple of things. Um, we advertise the survey through 16 organization and groups such mm -hmm. as ACB, NFB, IRA, right. Be My Eyes, um, Humanware. So, you know, a lot of younger folks um, may not be connected with those organizations and companies. I mean, I, mm. no, I don't know the last time you went to an ACB conference, but it seemed like we were a little skewed on the 50s-ish plus side um, yeah, with participants. I mean, that's not all I do, yeah. So I think that's part of it. The other thing is, you know, this, at the time we did the survey in April, I think more younger people were not as concerned about COVID as people over the age of uh, 50 or 60. Um, you know, our, I think a lot of our younger people are like, eh, it's no big deal, it's yeah. cold. And maybe, maybe the younger people would be more concerned now perhaps than they were then. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Yep. All, All right. right. So let's Onward. get let's get into this. So um, technology use. Why don't we talk a little bit about technology with use? Um, so what one of we add what we called concern statements throughout the survey. So these were statements, and I think everybody's done a survey where they give you a statement and they ask you to rate it from strongly disagree to strongly agree. We call these a Likert type scale. We then average the people's responses and we get a mean. So between one being strongly disagree and five being strongly agree, the closer we get to five, the higher the level of agreement with the statement. Um, and then we get something called a standard deviation, which is kind of the spread. Um, but one of our concern statements was that I'm concerned that visual information about COVID pandemic is being shown on television and that information is not accessible to me. And of the 1,692 people who responded, we got a 3.51 mean. So it mm. fell between neither agree nor disagree and agree. And we found that people were not happy 
that um, they couldn't access those maps, those infographics, um, and many people made comments about that. It wasn't mm -hmm. that they didn't have the technology, it was the, the, the websites, the TVs, um, you know, news thing wasn't accessible to them. So that was a concern. Um, we also found that people were um, using social media in a different way. Um, they were um, using it, you know, for more engagement. Um, here's a quote from somebody in the study who was a younger participant, uh, a, a male that was 25 to 34 years old. Mm -hmm. My usage of social media tools has changed. I use them to connect with others who have shared interests via groups to help maintain my mental health due to quarantine, social distancing guidelines and requirements. And we heard this over and over again from participants about that social isolation and how technology was helping to alleviate that. Um, we also heard that approximately um, 800 participants, I'm having trouble finding that exact number in the report, um, were connecting with other people with visual impairments. It was actually 808. Participants mm -hmm. reported they reached out to other visually impaired individuals in their personal networks for support. Um, a quote, it is important for the blind community to support each other, to give us the strength to help get us through these challenging times. And that was somebody who was a Hispanic female, age 25 to 34. Um, so, Technology really is important and became more important on a general level. And we'll talk a little bit later about how important it was in other areas as well, because that really came all the way through the study with um, comments and thoughts about technology. Interesting. So te technology was the first section. I, and I, I, I think I, you said that, that over 90% actually had smartphones do you remember offhand what proportion had computers as well? We didn't specifically ask about computers, so we we miss we miss that one. Um, I think, boy, Paul, you know, I let, I'm going to have to do a little follow up email to you to pass on to your readers. Maybe we did ask that question and we didn't include it in the report. Um, I don't know if one of your buds who was on here with us early, like Rick, might be able to just jot me a couple notes on things I need to follow up. I don't want to misspeak. I do think we asked that, but I don't have that number off the top of my well, head. It, does, it doesn't matter. You don't, okay. don't have to be perfect. All so right. Obviously, the most direct concern, um, uh, given the pandemic, was medical services. How did people feel about those? Well. I will tell you about medical services, but actually more people reported concerns about transportation than they did about healthcare, which really surprised us. We actually had 1,162 people or 63% of the group that expressed concerns about transportation. But I can come back to transportation and chat with you about healthcare if you prefer. Uh, you can talk about either one. All right, well, I'm gonna talk about transportation because that's where I am in the report. All right. I would talk about transportation if I were you. I, I would too. So um, with 63% of the people had, had concerns about transportation, um, probably we gave those concern statements. Remember, those are strongly disagree to strongly agree. And the number one concern statement, we had a lot of them here. We had 11 of them in transportation. But the number one thing people were concerned about was due to the COVID-19 pandemic, I do not feel safe taking public transit. Um, so that had a mean of 4.36, so between agree and strongly disagree. 
And then the second one was, um, I am concerned that because I do not drive, I will not be able to get myself or a family member to a COVID-19 test center. And that was 1,115 people with a mean of um, 4.24. So these were probably the two biggest concerns. How do I get places? And very close behind public transportation was paratransit, taxis, rideshare. And then how do I get myself or my loved one to a test site? And then how do I get myself or my loved one to care if they need to be hospitalized? Mm -hmm. And early on in the pandemic, all we were hearing about was drive up or drive through test sites. So this was really a big concern. One person shared, I'm not sure how I would get to a mobile testing site. I wouldn't feel comfortable using public transportation or rideshare services for fear of backlash or spreading COVID-19. And this was a black or an African-American woman, 35 to 44 years of age. Um, That whole, how do I get there? Because the ways I would normally get there, I would ask a friend, I would ask a loved one, I would ask, you know, take public transportation, I would get an Uber all went out the window with COVID-19 because I don't want to put somebody else at risk, um, especially a family member or a friend. And here I'm being told on the news, don't get on the bus, don't get on in an Uber if, if you have any potential signs. Um, we had one participant who spent time talking to the health insurance company to come up with a plan of how this older individual would get tested. We had other participants who called to say, look, I can't get to your drive-through test site. And they were basically told, well, that's not our problem. Or, you know, well, you need to find a ride. There was no plan in place in communities to meet the needs of people who didn't drive, who couldn't get through drive-through and also curbside pickup when we look at shopping. So that's one of the lessons that we should really take forward from this survey. We have to, we have to create ways um, to ensure that the needs of blind and visually impaired people are built into um, pandemic planning at the national, state, and local level. Yeah, absolutely. And really, it's emergency planning because um, think about our friends right now in the Pacific Northwest with these fires. How do you get out of your house if you don't drive and you've got mandatory evacuation? Um, We don't have good plans in our society. The assumption is you can get in your vehicle and you can drive to X. You know, huge lines at food banks. We have so many people experiencing food insecurity. How do you get to a food bank and and sit in that line for four hours if you don't have a car to sit in? Mm -hmm. So, um. Another concern that um, a few people shared, and I think is worth mentioning to, to our listeners, is around um, the, the idea that many people with a disability experience, it, well, let me back up, Paul, and let's say, and let me say the issue we were just talking about, for example, emergency planning, that's a systemic issue. COVID-19 has really brought it to the forefront. Um, not having access to graphical information on the news, on websites and apps. That's a systemic problem. It was here before COVID-19 and unfortunately it's going to be here after COVID-19. But one of the important things about this is we can use the report to leverage. One of the things we found out during COVID-19 is that a problem that we thought we had solved, we really hadn't. Because 
you know, there's there are, there are clear federal laws that require um, graphics that are on a television screen um, to appear on the secondary audio program channel. Uh, but the fact is, it just didn't happen during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, because they didn't regard the communications that they were doing as emergency. And so, you know, clearly that's another area that we're going to have to go back to. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And Paul, I'm, I'm looking at the time here. I'm getting a little nervous because we're, we're only in section three. <laughs> we're half, we're half an hour in. Um, yep. Let me just, let me just touch on a couple other highlights. Cause I, I really would also like to talk to your listeners about our child, um, study um, and i want you to well thank you i appreciate because that because because that's that's new news it's, it's it new, is new news report the report will be out next week so really there's important. a lot of other concerns in in trans the transportation area and i'll mention a couple of those and again direct folks to the report and the website um, I also want to say that we're going to be having three town hall meetings um, sponsored by AFB. They're right on the AFB homepage, the sign up. So that's www.afb.org. And our first town hall, which is this Friday, October 23rd, actually talks about transportation, health care, and voting. And it, it, you get to submit your questions. So if you go on and register and you have a question, if you have a thought, you get to share it. It's gonna be a, an open dialogue. To, well, not open, but we'll be asked questions and you guys will, you know, we'll get to talk. Um, our one on October 29th is going to be, yeah, October 29th is going to be on employment and technology. And then our town hall on November 10th, it's education. Yes, that's a Thursday. And then our last one is November 10th, which is a Tuesday. And that's looking at education across the lifespan. These are all free events. They're all from two to three o'clock Eastern. You go to www.afb.org to register and you can um, submit your questions or thoughts. so I want to talk about social um, just a little bit. And I actually just did an Inform and Connect um, webinar, or sorry, podcast um, with Melody Goodyear at AFB. So that's going to probably post tomorrow or Thursday if you guys want to listen. But 56% of the people had concerns about social aspects of being visually impaired. And one of the biggest concerns was that because of social distancing, that staying more than six feet away from others, I feel more repressed, sad, or lonely. And the deal with social distancing for folks with visual impairments, and I think we all can relate, is we really rely on touch and interaction. And so many of our participants talked about how not having that ability to hug people, to go human guide, to, to, you know, be so worried, you know, that stress of being so worried about getting in somebody's personal space was really negatively impacting them and really causing them to feel anxious and depressed. Um, One of our participants said, I need physical touch to connect with people. I need handshakes and hugs that Sunday always bought from going to church. Um, I think that's so true, whether it's church or, or something else for participants, that social connection. Um, though some people talked about using Zoom and FaceTime to connect with people. Others talked about those tools, but noted that 
um, because they weren't getting that visual input that others were getting, it was still making them feel very lonely and even left out, even when they were part of a big Zoom group, like their choir, for example. Um, so that's, um, that's really something to think about. I don't know what your thoughts are, Paul. I, I don't know how much, how much you have followed what's been happening with ACB, but we have had this explosion, if you like, of community calls um, yes starting starting in in march or april but i mean we are we are up to to, to probably close to a hundred um calls on different topics every week within acb um and, and 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 i think it's made a huge difference for the folks who've joined and at our virtual convention this summer um we actually attracted um, a, a, a really substantial number of new members for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think one of the more important ones is it, it, it represented a gathering place during the pandemic that people really felt comfortable in. Um, so when, when, you're, when, when you're looking at, at future areas where, where you might do some research, um, some of the folks who have used our community calls might be some subjects that you might want to look at. Absolutely. And we definitely, I've learned the term signal boosting since I've come to AFB. So we signal boost your ACB information and you all do that in turn for us. So we can we share about opportunities. So we let's. And by, the, and by the way, if you send me information via email um, about the town hall meetings, I'll see that it gets on all the ACB lists for you tomorrow. Well, thank you. I will do that. My friend Rick's going to send me an email and tell me to do that afterwards. Um, <laughs> I always give somebody that job when I teach university classes. I'm like, who's Dr. Yep. Penny Scribe? Uh, start an email to me now um, and hit send when I dismiss you. There is a test, <laughs> folks. All right. So healthcare, um, we would have thought that would have been the number one concern, but actually that was the third um, largest concern in this group. I suspect it might be different if we did the survey today and not back in April um, because COVID was still kind of far away. It was over there in China. Yeah. Um, but 1,010 people, so 54% had healthcare concerns. And the, probably the biggest healthcare concern was around feeling like you were going to be discriminated against. So mm -hmm. if you think back and it's starting to pick up again on the news as we're getting into wave two, that all that talk about well, they're going to run out of ventilators and then who, who are they going to decide gets a ventilator? Um, and so some of our participants were um, very concerned about, so here one person said, and this is a female, boy, I'm telling you everybody's old. And then I'm just like the third 35 to 44 year old congenitally white female. Um, I'm afraid that I'll be denied services due to people not understanding my vision impairment or my mental health issues. With COVID-19, everything has changed and you are usually alone, which is horribly frightening. And people talked about that idea that, and it's still, that you can't often have somebody in the hospital with you because of right. the COVID restrictions. And so that person that you would normally have go with you, whether it's a family member or a friend, somebody you hire, to be your advocate, to, to provide visual information to you when, when you, know, you needed it so that you didn't feel so alone. You're not having that 
person with you or knowing that you're going to get dropped off at the emergency room exiting you're going to entrance and you're going to be on your own um was really really challenging um, mm-hmm. Another thing that challenged people was medication. Most people in the study, remember, I said they were very tech savvy. You know, they knew how to get their meds delivered, um, or they were able to quickly fill it, at, figure it out. But some people um, had to go to the pharmacy to get their medication. Um, this is probably one of the quotes that every time I read it makes me laugh and cry. Um, this is from a 65 to 74-year-old um, white female. I take one medication that is a controlled substance for sleep. It has to be picked up from the pharmacy. I asked if there was any way it could be delivered since I'm totally blind. They said I could come to the drive-thru. I'm not sure what car they think I will drive. And it's that disconnect with, hey, we need different options for people. Not everybody can drive. Um, The same thing with telehealth. Uh, Many people were using telehealth because that was, you know, the option, especially in the beginning, but some of the telehealth sites were not accessible and, or parts of the site were accessible. And then how do you get the camera set up so the doctor can really, you know, see, see what your issue is. So telehealth for many people was frustrating. I can certainly relate to the camera thing. Yes. Um, Yep. Um, All right. Um, folks really do need to, um, to check out this report, um, because uh, we have really, and I, and I think Penny would agree with me, we've really only scratched the surface of the report. Um, there, there are whole sections we really haven't talked about. Um, just before we leave it, though, talk to me about voting since we're close to the election. Sure. Um, so... This was during the primary season. So some people had or, or had already primaried or caucused, or I don't know if primary is the right word, but some people had already cast their, their, their primary vote, so to speak. Some people were in a state where things had been changed and they weren't going to be able to, and others were really struggling with whether I want to go um, and how am I going to do that. We had a couple people who talked about that the accessible voting machine, nothing new for them. Every year they go, every election they go, it's not set up and people are fiddling around trying to get set up and how that was even more frustrating frustrating this round because they were trying to get in and out because of COVID-19. Yep. Yep. Um, there was concern about mail, um, mail-in ballots, you know, that the state was going to mail-in ballots. And how, how am I, as a person who can't see that print on that ballot, going to fill that ballot out and maintain my privacy? Because my vote is my vote, not, not something I want to mm-hmm. share um, with anybody yep. else. So uh, we, we know from, from work we've been doing in ACB that there's still an awful lot of work to do um, everywhere uh, to, make, to make voting more effective and more appropriate. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about the second report, which is coming out next week. And since I seem to be getting report names wrong, tell us what it's called again. Sure. It's called Access and Engagement. And so this report will be, we have the executive summary is up. And so you can go to afb.org forward slash access engagement all all together. Um, The full report should be up mid to late next week. So, so 
let me back up here. So we're, we're back on April 3rd. We're releasing the flatten inaccessibility announcement. So ACB is blogging it and tweeting it and all these other organizations and companies. And Dr. Tina Hertzberg at the University of South Carolina reached out to me that day and she said, Penny, I, I've been thinking about our kids with visual impairments and I want to know more about what's going on with them. I'm, I'm hearing a lot you know, from teachers and families, but, but we, need, we need to get data if we're going to make change. Can AFB help me? And I'm like, oh my God, I haven't slept for 10 days, but okay, Tina, I'm on it. So um, went, went back to uh, Kirk Adams and our, our leadership team, and I just said, hey, here's an opportunity. You know, we're already on a roll. Might as well just keep going. So Access and Engagement launched on um, April 22nd, an easy date for me to remember. It's my wedding anniversary. It was open mm -hmm. for three weeks, so it closed on May 13th. This survey was open to family members of a child who's receiving education, so birth to 21. Um, so this is special education. So we have a law called the Individuals with Disability Education Act, IDEA. So mm -hmm. students receiving education under IDEA, so not college students. Um, it... It, we also collected data from teachers of students with visual impairments or TVIs and orientation and mobility specialists or O&M um, specialists. And so we ended up with four data for 455 children and 1,028 professionals. And we are next week going to launch Access and Engagement 2 because we know that there's still a lot of challenges for our students with visual impairments um, in the 2020-2021 school year. So in, in, in general, um, what, did, what did the report demonstrate about the degree to which kids who are blind or visually impaired during the pandemic were receiving services that were adequate? So adequate's a tough word. Um, we didn't actually use adequate, but we asked questions like, um, do you feel that your child is progressing or regressing? Um, most families felt like their child was not progressing in the same way they would had school not been disrupted by COVID-19. And the professionals also felt that. We asked if um, both families and professionals felt students would be ready for the 2020-21 school year. And most folks felt that students would not be ready for the 2021 right. school year. Um, one of the statistics, Paul, and everywhere I go and I'm talking about this report really, really stuck out for me. So we asked the teachers of students with visual impairments, and we ended up with um, 890 people we counted in this category, because we have mm -hmm. some folks who are TVIs and some folks who are O&M instructors, so they work in both roles. We call them duly certified professionals. Right. So we lumped those duly certified professionals with the TVIs, and we ended up with 890. And of those 890, about 450, give or take a few, said, yes, I have at least one student who is in general education classes, so hanging out with the typical kids, or is in a special ed class that's not for kids with visual impairments, who is getting online education this spring. Of those, of those teachers who said, yes, I have a child, at least one child in online education, 85% of those teachers said, I have at least one student who's having an access problem, whether that's accessing the website 
whether that's accessing the app, whether that's accessing the um, video that the teacher, the, you know, that general or general or special ed teacher recorded for the class mm -hmm. to watch and then, you know, do the math problems or whatever. 85% of these folks said that the kids couldn't fully access and participate in education. Yeah, that's scary because I, I don't think, I don't think that a lot of us had the impression it was quite that bad. It was. Now, again, we were a few weeks into the switch. We used March 1st as our date. Um, and but by the time we opened up the survey on April 22nd, every U.S. state and every Canadian province um, had closed down schools. So right. people were still very much scrambling to figure out what um, what needed to be done. And the problem is we're still scrambling. And for many of our students, especially our students with additional disabilities, and 56% of our students are 255 out of 455 children. So 56%, the family members reported the child just didn't have a visual impairment, but they had other challenges, either physical or cognitive or both, that impacted their learning. And so for many of these children, it wasn't working. Um, let me read you a quote here, Paul, that's from uh, a female family member of a seven-year-old child with low vision and additional disabilities. While I appreciate the teacher's efforts to keep the class in connected and engaged as possible, it is very logistically challenging to participate fully when I have another child, a job I'm trying to do at home, and my child doesn't like the virtual classroom. I wish I felt more capable as the parent to support my child's total involvement in the virtual classroom, but I'm often feeling like we're stressed and I'm not sure how much she is benefiting from any of it. Um, and we heard this over and over again, unfortunately, right. how to make this type of learning appropriate for our kids. What, what sorts of solutions were pointed at in, in, in the survey, if any? Well, so let me, you know, that's a great question, Paul. So both for the flattening accessibility and the access and engagement report, throughout the reports, um, we have recommendations or possible solutions for um, individuals to consider. And in the case of access and engagement, we've divided them up for families, for professionals, um, for administrators, and for public, uh, for policymakers. Um, overwhelmingly, the biggest um, recommendation that came from the data is is that we need ex access for our children. That if they can't access the curriculum, whether they're a deafblind preschool child, uh, middle school low vision child, a, a braille reader with additional disabilities who's transition age, that 18 to 20 one year group, they have to be able to access the education. If they can't access, they can't learn. So I have one more question about the accessing access and engagement survey, and then we're probably going to start opening it up for some comments and questions, because I want to give people a chance to ask the things that they're interested in. Um, my question is, did, were there any measures in the survey that allowed you to get a sense of what the technological competence of uh, blind and visually impaired kids was? Um. In this particular survey, in, in Access and Engagement 1, we didn't ask pointed questions um, about technology skills, and, and that 
you know, you learn from everything that you do. And access and engagement too, which again is opening next week, we do ask questions about, about students' technology skills. Um, we heard both from parents and, or family members and professionals that that children who had strong tech skills going into the pandemic were doing much better than children who, who didn't have right. strong tech skills. And also families. Um, for many of our students, you know, we've got our younger students, our students with additional disabilities, our students who maybe have just gotten a new piece of equipment in January or even back at the beginning of the school year and aren't proficient with it yet. They need that support. And when that teacher, visually impaired students, or that O&M instructor isn't there in person, that really makes it challenging. Um, one of my favorite quotes, though, was from a family member of a younger child, and I, I can't find it off here, so I'm going to paraphrase. But basically, which my kid, my, my elementary child, is having to learn how to problem solve with technology. This is a skill my child's going to be able to use throughout their life. Um, so some families really found the positives here. Karen, you're allowed to talk. You can unmute. Okay, I'm going to go back to a comment that was made earlier about the firefighters. Fire in California. Also, we need to address earthquakes, hurricanes, yes. tornadoes, and other weather events in the emergency section. And I know what that was not brought up in the survey. And also, Paul, to you as an AC member and a fellow between you and I, we both with ACMB and BRL. Uh -huh. We need to be create a task force for the emergency preparedness task force. I'm also Absolutely. a first member. I'm also a first right, member. Karen. Yep. Very good. Thank you, Miss Karen. Do you want to comment at all? Um, no, I'm going to fully agree with Karen. And Karen, that's one of um, the comments in the flattening accessibility report is that community leaders need to engage with people with disabilities, visual impairment and other disabilities to ensure that their needs are being made. We also talk about in our recommendations that people with visual impairments need to advocate for and make your needs known. I mentioned that, um, I think I mentioned that there's a blog post that we have up on the AFB website, five ways you can use the flatten and accessibility report. Thanks. I, I, I want y'all to know I appreciate it. And also, uh, my cert teacher would like to see them become cert classes all over the country. Thanks, Thanks Ms. Karen. We appreciate it. First of all, Dr. Penny, I would just like to say I admired all your research on transportation. In fact, when I was doing my paper for my master's, I actually did it on transportation and cited a lot of your research. So thank you. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the children's aspect of this because the one thing that I didn't hear you say, and, and I assume it was addressed, is it's not just a matter of being able to access it, but it's being able to have the equipment you need at home to access yes. it. And what we found in Georgia is a lot of the school systems, you know, they're, they're each board of, of uh, education dictates what happens in its community. And what we found in our finding is they didn't want to let the equipment go mm -hmm. home with the child so the child could be able to do what they needed to do to be able to continue to learn. Absolutely. So, Alice, you first of all, thanks for the compliment on the transportation. Um, but you raise a really good point. So, 
in our in our access and engagement one survey, the one we're talking about, the, the reports out next week, we asked the TVIs and OM instructors what materials they didn't have at home. And they spent a lot of time saying, okay, these are the things I don't have, but look, these are all the things my student doesn't have. We also asked the family members, what things does your child use at school? before COVID-19, and again, we used March 1st as the date. So what right. tools were things, you know, laptop, iPad, Braille books, um, abacus, cane, was your child using at school before March 1st? And what things does your child not have at home that's impacting their education? We found that 50% of kids didn't have screen reader software that they had at school. Approximately 25% of kids didn't have Braille books that they had at school. Um, it's happy to report that almost every child who used a cane in school had a cane at home. Um, this time, and we're being more specific in access and engagement too with those questions. We really want to dig down and we also want to look at learning platforms. So we have a list of like 30 something apps and tools, including Zoom, that people are using and we want to know what, what tools are accessible and what tools aren't. So we're really going to dig in this time. So and, and just one more thing, and, and that what I was going to say is when you were talking about on the first, the flattening um, survey and the fact that not many young people, I, I think a couple of places where they probably would have been more apt to have seen it would have been through IRA and, and Humanware because those are the things they're our young people are into, but it's like you said, I think, I think for them, because everybody kept saying, oh, we don't have to worry about the youth. The youth aren't going to get it. And, and, and then lo and behold, we found out that wasn't true. But back when it first started and the survey was first done, the young people weren't considered to be at risk. Yes. Yes. I think you're absolutely right. And IRA and, and Humanware are two of our partners on both surveys and will be our, a partner again on the access and engagement too. So if you don't see so them awesome. blogging and posting, you get on them and tell them that Penny said that they promised they would get the stuff out there. So what are the anecdotal things we heard? And I don't know if there's any, if there's, if, if there's any support for this in, in the, in the segment uh, on education, but one of the anecdotal things we've heard is that uh, orientation and mobility instructors are particularly badly off because it's sort of hard to teach online. Yes. Um, but but more than that, we've heard that in some districts, um, they're they're actually not getting paid because it's alleged they can't work. Um, I I don't know about the pay, Paul. Nobody spoke about that in in the spring survey, but they did speak about um, that it's. Uh, here's a quote. I think working as an O&M specialist is one of the most difficult jobs to have as a service provider. We have such a wide range of students and trying to ensure that they have the online access um, they need is, is overwhelming. People talked about, you know, I can't teach street crossings um, online. Now, I have to tell you, one of our favorite, favorite quotes um, was from somebody who said, I'm going to find a way to get around this. So this is a, a white female O&M specialist. And I want to read this quote because this person mm -hmm. early on in the pandemic thought outside the box. So this is the O&M instructor speaking. I've enjoyed creating meaningful activities that students can do by themselves and feel successful completing. The car stalker O&M specialist has been hugely successful. I provided a satellite map of the student's block I instructed the student and a parent which part of the route we would address. 
I met the student and parent in my car outside their home with the student wearing a headset and, um, and connected to me via phone. As the student walked the route, I instructed, observed, provided feedback, and collected data. We loved that quote. That was one of our few O&M folks who really shared a way they had said, I can continue to instruct and collect data um, in real time outside of the home. Um, and excellent. we need more folks to think outside the box, but we also need more administrators um, to support O&M instructors in coming up with creative ways and TVIs as well, so that we can continue children's education in this really crazy time. Mm -hmm. Now, that one of the assumptions that, that I think has also been made about education is that the most disadvantaged folks during the pandemic are, are kids with disabilities. And so the, there appears to be an argument that's being made, certainly in the media all over the place, that, that the group that will benefit the most from getting back into school um, in person uh, is are, are kids with disabilities, kids with special needs. Um, do, do you, does your second survey address that? And does your first survey point to that? Um, we had a lot of parents who talked about how they worried about their child, especially their child with multiple disabilities, um, being back in school and what that was um, going to look uh, look like um, because their child was medically fragile. Um, when in this new survey coming up, Access and Engagement 2, we, we are probing into the, if your kid is, your, excuse me, if your child is with in-person folks, whether that's somebody coming to your home or whether that's in the classroom, um, what kind of precautions are being taken? And we have one of those Likert items that strongly, um, you know, disagree to strongly agree mm -hmm. about, do you feel like the risk of potentially your child getting COVID-19 um, outweighs um, the education that they're getting. So we, we asked that question um, specifically of family members because we really Those do want to know. Interesting to see. Yes. Um, yep. Uh, do we have another question? Yes. Time? Penny? Yes. Hey. Hey, Penny. Hey, I'm Penny. I'm uh, sorry. Penny Reader. <laughs> Penny Reader. Oh. oh, Penny Reader. Hello, Penny Reader. How are you? Um, I got here late, and I have, I have another meeting that I'm missing, and I have to leave. But uh, is, where's your research going to be published besides AFB's website? Is it going to be in JVLBI, or, or where's it going to be? Do you know? So um, we we have, with the Flatten and Accessibility Study, we're working on a transportation article specifically, um, and we're working on a healthcare article, and then um, something called structured equation modeling, which is a little over my head. Some other folks are yeah, doing that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so that I, I can tell you that the transportation one is going to JVIB, that the structured equation modeling one is going to um, kind of more of a public health um, journal. And the oh, healthcare one, I'm not quite sure where it's going. That's like two other people on our team. With the access and engagement articles, we we have so many people working on so many articles. I think we counted seven today in our meeting. Oh, that's um, good. And that's we good. actually um, have emailed um, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness, Dr. Sandra Lewis, to say 
Sandy, like, can we have like our own edition? Um, <laughs> that's great. That's super. Um, I don't think we're going to get one, but I think we will be looking oh, at I, other thank outlets. Thank you so as much well. for doing this research. It's it's thank so you. needed, and uh, and it was nice to talk to you again. Take care of yourself. Find my email address and send me an email, Penny Reader. I'd love to. I will. I will. Okay. All right. Bye. Thank you, Paul. Thank great you. show. Penny. You're, you're welcome, Penny. And her her email address is very easy. Penny Reader. It's P. Rosenblum, R-O-S-E-N-B-L-U-M at AFB.org. It is very easy, and I should have just said that to all of you. Um, so, um, uh, so Miss Penny, move move your headset just a little because there have been times when you've been getting into a slightly slightly icky sound. I'm not quite I'm sure. I'm sorry why. about that. I think Crackly. it's me. It I think it's internet. me itching my head because this headset's killing me. Oh, all right, no. is that is that better? <laughs> Not it's a lot, like, but it's but like it's, internet. It's, it's good enough. I don't think it okay. is, Miss um, okay. Deb. But anyway, okay. um, who do we have next? Um, hi, my name is Preetam, and uh, I was born visually impaired. And uh, Doctor uh, Rosenblum's research sounds really interesting, and I would probably want to dig in more. Uh, doctor, I would like to find out from you. Um, you. In the beginning of the session, you mentioned your research on um, how uh, children born visually impaired um, cope with social situations. So could you just give us a few highlights of that research? Sure. It sounds like you have a child there in the background. Um, oh, yeah, that's my nephew. <laughs> <laughs> very mm -hmm. cute. So um, I was very interested in friendship and how do children establish friendship? Friendship is a give and take thing. You've got to have trust. You've got to have loyalty. You have to have a shared interest. And so for my dissertation research, I looked at do children with visual impairments have similar re friendships um, to typically developing children? And I found they really did. And I found that um, to make a friendship work for a child with a visual impairment, there were four things that they, they needed. And I hope I can remember all of them. So the first one was um, orientation and mobility skills. When you get to middle and high school, um, interaction real social interaction does not happen in the classroom. It happens in the cafeteria. It happens in that five minute passing period between classes. And so if, if a student, you know, a child doesn't have the orientation and mobility skills to travel the halls themselves, you know, they need to be taken places by an adult, they miss those social opportunities. So that was one thing I found. A second thing I found was you have to have a sense of humor. And I think all of us on this um, podcast today who have a visual impairment have been in situations where you just have to laugh, laugh because if you don't yeah. laugh, you're going to cry. Um, so kids who are comfortable enough in their own skin to laugh at the dumb things that inevitably happen to all of us because we have visual impairments and we just miss social signals or, you know, we miss things that are going on. Um, the third thing was that you had to have something in common with your friend. So I had kids that require, you know, people together. I had kids, I had two kids that built furniture together after high school. They actually started a very successful business here in Tucson doing furniture building yeah. and repairs. Um, so you had to have something in common with people. And I knew I can't, I knew there would be one I couldn't remember. O&M common things, sense of humor. And I, for the life of me, I cannot remember the last one. I apologize. Oh, good. I'm impressed. This was, this was what, 30 years ago? 
no, <laughs> Paul, don't make me feel really old. <laughs> 23. <laughs> Something like there that. Something yeah. like that. But uh, a fair length of, I couldn't, I, I couldn't remember any of the dissertations I wrote for master's degree if I tried no. But, but of course I'm, I'm, I'm older than you, so. Um, okay. I would like to, I would like to go back to something that was mentioned briefly, uh, and that was the crawls on the television and, and the maps on the television and the yeah. websites and everything. What, were there any quotes from people about that that you could, could give us either about ways that they handled it or, or, or just what they had to say. Sure. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Give me just a second or two. Um, so ways people handle it, I think, are the ways that we all handle it. Ask a sighted person, um, you know, call and complain, those types of, um, those types of things. Yeah. I'm, I'm heading I, to that I was section. Call and complain people. I was really um, pissed. Um, I, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking here. <laughs> Mostly, um, I listen to NPR, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do, you have, do you have other comments while while she's looking yeah, for that? Yeah, there's a good one I'm looking for, Chris, and it's just not I'm not finding it. Um, Chris, do you have another comment or, or, or anything um, else you want? Actually, yeah, actually, I'm not seriously. Uh, I do listen to radio to get some of that, but it isn't yeah. enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. The, no. the other thing. The other thing that a lot of people have pointed to in, in my kind of anecdotal conversations is apparently Newsline did a really good job of creating um, pandemic information. Um, they have a whole section and apparently it, it's very good. Um, I, I, I find listening to tables incredibly uncomfortable and so I generally don't do it. So I'm, I'm sort of like Chris. Um, I, and and I'll I'll read newspapers, but I but I haven't so far looked at the newsline pandemic stuff, though it is supposed to be really good. Um, and I've had loads of people who are able to tell me more than I've ever gotten from radio and television, who who are who are strong newsline pandemic users. Yeah, um, Chris, I did find some information for you, or not information, okay. but. Technology really went across all the areas. So whether it was transportation, apps that weren't accessible and schedules were changing, mm -hmm. whether it was um, the social interaction we talked about or the telehealth. But another big area where we really saw people talking about access was around getting meals, food, and supplies. Um, so yes. one person said, I did not previously use apps for grocery service delivery, so I had to learn quickly with support from a sighted friend. I knew, now use Instacart regularly on my iPhone with voiceover successfully. So for this person, they were able to get up to speed. Um, but for other people, they really struggled with the apps because of accessibility. So another person said, I mainly have been using Peapod because I can get much lower prices I, than in the major stores or major, major um, city stores. I, I do was, not know if I missed yeah. it. 
Let me just finish the quote. Go ahead. ahead. Okay, let me just finish the quote and then then we'll go to you. Um, I mainly have been using Peapod because I can get my much lower prices than in the major city stores. I don't know if I have missed an occasional available delivery time slot. There is no way to find out quickly, but I've looked through three weeks of days and not found anything. And so some of these apps weren't fully accessible and that was really frustrating to people. This was, this is more, um, although that I think they kind of link to each other they work the same way but this was not uh, this was the the television maps and, okay yeah the maps that that said what cities had um or states had yes. more covid spread that kind of thing that was what i was talking about well but, and i, but that I, I agree with you too well, let me let me just share a side conversation so when flatten or not a side conversation but just an experience i had last week or the week before, it's all blending. Um, When the Flatten Report posted, which was September 30th, um, Mm -hmm. because we were determined to get it up by the end of the month because it said September on it. Um, Very shortly, I was contact after I was contacted by somebody in the mayor's office in New York City, and they have a specific team that focuses on disability. And I had the pleasure of meeting with this group about 10 days ago, I'm guessing. And they were very proud. And I said, I don't mean to be critical here, folks, but I'm I'm questioning your proudness here. They were very proud that after seven months, they were about ready to make the New York City five boroughs, you know, find out where COVID is in each zip code, you know, site accessible. Uh, And But they, you know, they, what they explained to me, and I think this is one of the big yes. recommendations in our report, is they mm-hmm. were on it on day one. The challenge, and I think this is the challenge for all of us, why I talk about we have systemic issues, right. is it's the third party people who develop the software who don't even begin to think ex- about accessibility or what I like to think about is inclusivity and universal design on the front end. So that if if those things were thought about on the front end, then, you know, this program, I'm I'm guessing, I have no idea, but that probably cost the city millions of dollars, would have been accessible before we had a pandemic and everybody could use it. And that's the voice we need to get out there. We need to let these companies know. I'm a real fan of universal design. So, yeah, I, I agree yeah. with you. Thank you very much. You answered sure. my question. <laughs> sure. Thank you. All right. Penny, um, before I call on the next person, I just want to add that I also heard there were people who walked to drive through places yes. to get food and were denied. Yes. And we had people who talked about that. We had people who talked about, um, you know, I tried to go to the bank and they wouldn't let me in the building and they wouldn't let me walk up to the drive through window. The same thing with the pharmacy and the same thing with the food. Now, I will tell you in this report, there is a picture on me, my bike at a fast food restaurant. Asked the car behind me if he would take my picture. He thought I was a little weird. Um, I, I personally bike through quite a number of places here in Tucson, um, you know, our restaurants and my, my Walgreens pharmacy with no issues, but people definitely did talk about having that issue. Yeah, I think it's a big one. And, and Deb, when, if, if you have any questions, you're welcome to ask them. Just a comment more than anything. I, I really think that um, a lot of this stuff is, it will in part, it seems to me, get as good as relationships can get. And 
and relationships getting good or gooder is such an ongoing process, uh, such an ongoing work in progress. That's why we're having all these issues about um, lots of things going on with race and gender. And because I think it, it, and, you know, when, what I was thinking of when you were talking about discrimination is that so many people are afraid that a disability is contagious. So I imagine that there are many people who have felt blamed just by taking a step like, oh, no, don't come close to me. No, you know, and sort of chastised. And, and, you know, I, I think there's that sort of need. I hear people talk about like the t-shirt message, MMFI, make me feel important. And the, how often we really all need to be seen. And when, you know, with all that social distance and fear of disability and that's out there. I mean, I just think it's about relationships. It's about relationships, you know, people learning to talk to each other and hear each other, in my opinion, anyway, that's, that's, Deb, I'm, I'm so with you. Um, this was a quote that was very upsetting for me when I read it the first time and we included it um, because we felt it was very powerful and important for people to, to read um, in the transportation section. I am also Asian and with the rise in hate crimes and discrimination against Asian Americans, I'm afraid to use public transportation or ride share in fear of getting hurt or denied access. Um, and that really, um, on a personal level, you know, really concerns me um, that that somebody not only is worried about how they're going to be treated with a visual impairment, but they're worried about how they're going to be treated because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity. Um, so I, I hope people use had, this. If we'd had more folks from those groups, we would have heard a lot more like that, I think. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, Paul, let me just give a plug here. So this access and engagement to study the, the children's study is going to release next week. And one of the things um, I'm asking every single person that I come in contact with, so everybody who's listening to this live or recorded, you might be a 50, 60, 70 year old person, and you don't have a child and you're the school age. So you're not really interested in this study. Not that you don't care about kids, but you're not going to fill it out. But if you know a family that has a child with a visual impairment, can you support that family in getting the survey done, whether that's telling them about it, and they're going to take it from there? whether that's that family doesn't have internet access or doesn't have a lot of devices. So you can offer to read them the survey and put their data or loan them a device. Um, you could even make idea. dinner for their, their family and go over there and play with the kids in the backyard just so that family member can sit inside and quiet and do the survey with, you know, it takes about 30 minutes without being disrupted or having to care for children. If we each could reach out to one family, especially our families who are on the lower end of the digital divide and or our, and I don't want to make blanket statements, but our families of color who often don't choose to participate or aren't comfortable participating um, in this type of survey from just an email that they get randomly, we're going to have a much better understanding of how education is being impacted by COVID-19 for our children with visual impairments. Hello. No, it's a false alarm. Do we have, uh, do we have someone else, Ms. Deborah? Yes, Diane.
Hi, uh, Paul and Penny and everyone else. Um, I was curious, because I can't remember, I, I was one of the over a thousand people who uh, took the survey. Um, two of us, Diane. <laughs> I was curious um, if there were uh, alternative, was this, was this survey basically open only to people who had access to technology? We had about seven or eight percent of the people who had somebody help fill them out. I got a few phone calls, I want to say less than five, of somebody who said, you know, can somebody help me fill it out? And I had a volunteer on tap who I know met with at least, met on, you know, on the telephone with at least three different people to, you know, read them the survey and have um, help them, you know, by entering in the information that they, you know, provided. Oh. We talked um, amongst ourselves and, and the same thing with this next access and engagement survey about how much I would really like us to have an 800 tele telephone number that people could call um, getting money for that and getting that staff, you know, we talk about it, but it doesn't happen. And that's part of the reason I'm really asking for people to reach out to others. So again, the flattening accessibility was primarily folks who were connected. Okay. So, so it, yeah, it yeah. would have been interesting, but you right. know, if you if you if you made the effort to uh, make it available to other people and they just didn't come forward for one reason or another, you know, that's yeah. that's not anybody's fault. Yeah. So. No, but the point you make is right, though, Diane. I mean, this was an elitist survey. Um, yes. And, and I don't think there's any other way to describe it. And 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 unfortunately, it's probably not a survey that gets to the. Uh, if they're such an animal, the quote, typical unquote blind person. Um, because the quote, typical unquote blind person probably is, is, is technologically um, less capable and, and yeah. probably doesn't have the money to afford technology either. I think yes. that's true based on my experience also. Um, but, so, uh, you so know, how, I, how how could we deal with that in the future, though, Penny? Because, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think it's really important that we find a way uh, to reach out to, to the population that we're not capturing um, by, by an online survey. Yeah. Um, do, do we just need to look for a lot more money and, and, and do it some other way? Some of it, I think, is money, Paul, but some of it, I think, is also uh, making connections with community leaders. So, in talking with, with some folks who are Latina, um, talking with some folks who are African-American, you, what has been shared with me, and I'm a white middle-aged middle-class person. So, you know, I'm not speaking from experience. I'm speaking right. from other people sharing with me um, is you really have to go into the communities and you have to get to know those community leaders and build their trust. So they in turn, will engage with people in the community and basically say, this is a safe thing to do. Um, I spoke with a woman um, who's, who's Hispanic and, you know, we were saying, you know, we're, we're really low in the Hispanic department. Well, let's think about this for my folks who are white middle-class like me. We don't have to worry. I live in Arizona. I'm 70 miles from the Mexico border. I never think twice about the fact that uh, there's there's two um, border checkpoints between my house and the Mexican border. 
But mm-hmm. my, my cleaning lady, who happens to be Hispanic, um, happens to be a U.S. Um, citizen and a Mexican citizen, gets stopped every time and her car gets searched about every other time. Oh. I've been in cars probably 100 times with folks. Our car has never got stopped. It's never gotten searched. So why, if I'm feeling that ICE is going to be at my house tomorrow, am I going to take my chance, even though it says that the survey is anonymous, and give you my personal information? And I think the woman who shared that with me made a really valid point. Until we build trust, it's going to be really hard to get these um, individuals um, who aren't comfortable in their own skin in our society, so to speak, to take part in a survey or an interview or a focus group or whatever maybe research H- we're doing. Maybe ACB and NFB could take to take some leadership there in terms of um, engaging some of our members. I mean, we have we have a um, uh, the uh, multicultural affairs committee at, in in ACB. Um, and, and we could probably try to persuade them um, to work actively to get the survey done or right. the next survey done. So, I, I, but I think you're right. And I, but I think we do have to, I think we do have to find ways of gathering data on, on people who are blind and visually impaired. I know when we were preparing for this call, Penny, one of the things that I said to you, and I think you agreed with me was, Part of the problem we have in the blindness community is there really isn't any, any uh, or a lot of really good data on blindness and visual impairment. And, and depending on what you want to believe, you can usually find information mm-hmm. to support your position. So uh, p- part of me thinks that, that one of the things that we really need to begin to do is to get a picture of who we really are. Yes. Um, because who we really are right now is is determined by, uh, to a large extent, I think, what we believe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Paul. Let me let me just share briefly with you something that never crossed my mind. Okay, mm-hmm. I make a salary. I make a good salary. Um, thank you, AFB, for employing me and giving me health insurance and other benefits. Um, SNAP, which for many of us, we grew up with food, um, the term food stamps, but it's a supplemental nutrition program. So you get a set amount of money, not very much money every month. Okay. We're in a pandemic. Many, many people, as we talked about, are doing online food delivery, whether it's Instacart, Peapod, Walmart, Amazon Prime. They don't take SNAP. So if I have benefits... If I have my SNAP benefits, I can't use them to online shop. The website to sign up for SNAP is not very accessible. I have to be a pretty high-level tech user to navigate through that. Hmm. How can we expect people with visual impairments to feel valued if they can't use with their WIC benefits, their SNAP benefits, mm-hmm. to get food during a pandemic. Well, and and it's it's the same old story again. What we're what we're doing is we're we're taking a population that's probably more amenable to the virus, and asking them to take more risks because they have to shop in person. Right, and then and then then you've got this congenitally um, black. Um, female person who's 70, 
65 to 74 years of age who says, my greatest concern nowadays is having to most likely use assistance in the store. I am low vision. and I'm concerned about bringing items too close to my face to read them. Going forward, I will seek assistance and always travel with my white cane. Yet we have other people who say, I go to the service counter with my white cane and they're like, you know, we're not providing that anymore. Oh, that's, that's frightening. Well, um, it's a pandemic. But, we don't want to get within six feet of you. So why would yeah. we want to go down an aisle with you and help you find peaches? Yep. Got a point. Got a point. Miss Deborah, do we have anybody else? Terry. Good evening. Hi. Penny and Paul. Um, I have a question. I may have missed it at the beginning with uh, Penny. I'm curious on your statistics. I know you said about 25. Oh, Terry, did I just lose you? Gosh, I thought I muted somebody else. I'm so sorry, Terry. <laughs> oh, it happens to her every time she's used to it. Now. Yeah. Let's see. Am I back? You're back. You're back. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I got to 25. So you were asking about, about statistics that. and then something happened. About 25%, I think you said, of the your respondents were retired. Yes. I'm wondering of the your respondents, about how many were, say, over 55 or I forget what your actual demographic breaks were. Sure. Um, just a second. I am just zipping through this report, folks. It's a good thing that I have edited it about 900 times so I can find my way around really quickly. You are doing um, so well. I, yes. Uh, you know, I didn't know I was going to be the data girl of all time. So hang tight. Uh -huh. I'm getting really close. I could have just searched on table one. That would have made more sense. So here we are, table one. Um, so 35% were male and 63% were female. And then we you know, had a couple other folks that fell into different categories. 77% um, were white, um, as far as the ages go. 42.5% were over 55. 42.5% um, were over 55 five. and 25% were retired. Um, so we have well, that's a, that's a different category. So. Um, you know, you can be retired and be older or younger. So um, you can also be working and and absolutely be in that, that category. Right. So about thirty about thirty percent of people were unemployed. About twenty five percent of people were retired. I want to say about ten percent of people were like in school or you know going through a mm -hmm. training program. We only had about three hundred. I want to say three hundred and fifty people, and I could go find it. Um, who who were actually working. And we had a chunk of people who were working prior to the pandemic, but it had either been laid off or furloughed um, right. or the business had closed at the start of the pandemic. Uh, right. Thank you. I was just curious about how many were over 55 who were actually still working. Um, it just kind of was, is kind of an area in which I was interested. Yeah. And, uh, I think Paul, my other point Paul has already made, but I do think that if AFB were interested and if you were interested, I think that we could do some serious volunteering. We could get many of our people to volunteer. I'm to very interested. Um, and I will be reaching out to Paul. Um, Go ahead. And, you know, I sent Claire, and I, uh, I think it's Claire Stanley, an email this morning, actually, um, 
so yes, I very much would like yeah, to, to get you guys volunteering to we, to take the, to to make to make the calls, uh, uh, to take calls sure. from people who don't have technical uh, right. access. That, yes, and that or that to I, reach out to reach out to people, um, you know, members that. <clears throat> you know, and just to say, hey, you know, do you call, you know, sometimes just a personal thing, you know, this is Debbie, I'm an ACB with you. Um, do you qualify this for this? Do you know of another, yeah. do you know of a family, you know, you could give them my yeah. number, and I'm happy to help them with the survey. Um, so just just so you know, Miss Penny, Miss Terry does a, a show every week on community radio, which is also uh, a podcast, I think. It's coming um, to called- mainstream. Yeah, it's coming to oh. mainstream. Nice. So it's oh, it's called it's called visibilities for visually impaired seniors abilities. With abilities. Yeah. So um, so um, subscribe to it and listen to some of the shows once once it once it becomes up and available. And but but I think she has a core group of folks who are part of the visibilities um, family. Who, who would probably be prepared to help. Okay. And Terry, are you the Terry I visited with yesterday? Yes, I am. Okay. Terry, I will be Hi. in touch. I thought I recognized yes, the I voice. owe you an email. <laughs> <laughs> We're yeah, a small world in visual impairment, aren't we, folks? And, and, <laughs> and Terry's voice is pretty distinctive. You know, you sort of picture her in this basement club with a, with a glass of whiskey and a cigarette. Yes. It was a glass of Irish mist. And it wasn't okay. a basement. It was the first floor pub. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there too. Absolutely. <laughs> oh. Debbie, I don't Many know if we have time. another person or if no. I should chat about employment a little bit. Because I didn't there's look- anything I'm missing, Rick. I don't see any more hands right now. Chat chat nope. about employment a bit. No, there's no more right now, guys. Okay. okay. They're probably afraid to since I'm sitting um, here. No. <laughs> okay. So basically, I'll, I'll read you the numbers because I know some of you like the numbers. A couple of you can cover your ears. So there were 1,801 participants who reported their employment status. So almost everybody told us about their employment. So 29% um, were employed full-time um, and 162, I'm sorry, sorry, hold on. 523 people were employed full-time and 182 were employed part-time. So 29% and 10% of that 1,800. There were um, 3% of people who um, were employed full-time and COVID had closed down things. And for 6% of people had been employed part-time and COVID closed down things for them. So we had about 10% of people who had to stop working because of COVID. Um, So of the 718 people who were currently employed, um, 47% had concerns about employment. So about just a about half of the people mm. had concerns about employment, again, due to COVID. So um, they might have other concerns, but this was a study about COVID. And one of the things that we asked about was the accommodation and accessibility. Because remember, for many people back in that um, April thing, April, oh, sorry, thing, April time zone, they had very quickly shifted to working at home. And so we found that some people were able to bring home their accommodations, the large monitor, the laptop with JAWS, the Mm -hmm. Braille embosser. Other people were not able 
to bring home that technology and their productivity had really dropped. Some of them were waiting for employers to make a decision on whether or not they would give them the accommodations they needed. Um, some people made requests of the employer, hey, will you buy me a Zoom text license? Will you buy me a subscription to IRA so I can continue to do my job? Other people who had the financial resources were financially investing in a setup for home so that they could continue to do their job. Um, there was a small group of people who worried about whether they would lose their job because their productivity had diminished. Now, when we think about tools such as Zoom that we're using now, email that you got from Paul yesterday telling you about this deal tonight, um, we use a lot of tools. And on average, we found that um, people were using, I want to say about five to seven tools on average, somewhere in there. Um, but not all these tools were accessible. So here's a quote from a 45 to 50 year old white male. I use Microsoft Teams, Skype for business and WebEx for meetings throughout the day. They all have accessibility problems that range from irritating to serious barriers. In addition, I struggle to hear audio from both my screen reader and my colleagues on the video conference. Um, so that okay, I got home, but are these new tools accessible? And many people, if they had to learn a new tool, were doing it on their own or were checking in with somebody who had a visual impairment and was using a similar setup to them because the training that the employer was providing, which often are these little videos that you watch where they're saying, click here and click there. And you're going, whoa, you know, I can't see that screen. Um, weren't accessible. So that's my employment spiel. Yeah, I, so the, the, the number of people who are working from home um, who, who pointed out technological issues with working at home was fairly high, right? Or at least in, in terms of the percentage of those who were working yeah, at home. Yeah, about 40% of people were having some yeah. issue around access working at home, whether it was not mm -hmm. having the equipment they needed or not having tools that were accessible. We did some some um, early shows on Tuesday topics where we talked about some of the technological difficulties, and th there were some interesting response. Microsoft actually did some training on and and some modifications to Teams to make it more accessible. Yes, um, but I don't think I, I don't think a lot of the other entities that were out there really did very much to help. And and again, I don't think employers jumped up and down to make training their visually impaired employees a high priority. No, there was one person who talked about how helpful their employer was, but by the most part, people were either afraid to ask or were um, denied, um, you know, previously. So, you know, we're like, I'm not going to bother asking. Um, you know, many of the issues that the employees were having were also um, found by the individuals who went to college or, or training um, again, a small number, there were 314 participants that, um, uh, of the 314 participants, 169 had concerns about their education. So it was a pretty small number mm -hmm. of people. Um, so 68 participants who were attending rehab training programs, uh, they had, they had concerns. And then, um, 23 people who, nope, I don't want to read you that. 
This is why you should not try and read when you have a visual impairment online. Um, there were 43 participants attending college and 20, um, four-year college and 27 attending graduate school. So not a whole lot of people that were in college. Again, like I said, we had an older population, but for the folks who were in college, um, so we really had about 158 people, 66% um, of those people um, had, had reported their school, introduced new technology tools to facilitate accessing curriculum. And half of those, a third of those people said those tools weren't accessible. So that's a concern. Um, one person said, I'm concerned about the increased use of Google products such as Docs and Sheets, which are not fully accessible with JAWS. I'm concerned about take-home tests and the time limits and whether my school will adjust the time limits to comply with my accommodations. Um, because there was such a close scramble um, things that people used on campus. So for example, somebody to go to class with you and, and help with experiments or to um, interpret for you were now not available to you for our, like our deaf blind individuals right. in this virtual world. And that was really um, challenging. And folks that were feeling like professors just didn't even know what to do with, with regular students and now you're saying hey I have a visual impairment can you help me out and then also folks who couldn't get the like braille or the tactile graphics that they would have gotten on campus from the disability um, resource center um, mm -hmm. a 18 to 24 year old um, said I'm taking an organic chemistry class prior to the pandemic disability services were providing tactile materials for the class we can't figure out a safe way to deliver large amounts of materials. So I have to take it in complete in the class and continue it in the summer. Um, and did yeah, that person yeah. really get to continue uh -huh. it in the summer or this fall? Cause you know, back in April, probably we thought not. we would be uh, done by June. Yeah, probably not. And, and it's, it's a, you know, I, I, I think it, it, it is the number of things that the pandemic has taught us are huge. Um, the question is, can can we use them? You know, colleges and universities um, didn't do a really good job of making their online stuff accessible, and they and and they they rushed to judgment rather than looking for the most accessible tools. They looked for the tools they had on hand and used them, whether they were accessible or not. Yeah, and you know, from the K twelve education standpoint. I mean, obviously, our schools aren't doing well thinking about our kids with disabilities, but they never think about a family member having a disability. Um, this is a quote that really has stuck with me um, from an Asian adult 30, woman, 35 to 44 years. Whenever I use Class Dojo, which, um, which is, I guess it sends out messages and assignments and stuff. Whenever I use Class Dojo with my iPhone, it is completely inaccessible. I'm able, I am unable to access messages, comments, or anything that else my child's teacher left for the parents to read. When accessing Class Dojo via my laptop, it is somewhat accessible. However, there are many buttons that are not labeled, and it's hard to decipher how to maneuver from one posting to the next. Another parent said, I'm lucky that I have kids with vision because Google Classroom has lots of access problems. So, you know, we don't think we don't think on the education arena about family members support people for our children who have disabilities. And we are asking about that in access and engagement too. That that is that is a good thing. So
again, in access and, and engagement too, are are you exploring um, the degree to which platforms that are that are being deployed for K twelve kids are accessible? Yes, we are. So we have been asking teachers um, about what tools their students are are using. We have this huge list. Um, so which learning tools is your child expected to use for their education? Select that will apply even if your child is not able to use the tool because it is not accessible. I'll just read like the first 10. Adobe Spark, Band, Canvas, Clever, Class Dojo, Edgenuity, Ed, Edmontum. I don't even know what half these things are. Edpuzzle, email, Facebook groups, Facebook Messenger, FaceTime. And then our next question asks, which learning tools are not accessible to your child because of their visual impairment and or additional disability? So we do that same list of tools again. So we wanna know what are quote unquote the class using and which of these tools can your child not use? And then we follow up with describe the accessibility challenges your child is having with any of the learning tools. Describe any solutions that have allowed your child to complete the learning tasks in a different way. So we really are delving into that on this survey. That's excellent. I, I, I think some of that data will, will be useful. Um, and, and are you also gathering data on uh, what the what what the attendance of the kids is like i.e and and are you including hybrid that is you know part-time in in person and part-time yes um online so we we for both um for family members we give um six six we say we know everybody's doing something different but pick the one that's the closest for your kid in person all the time online all the time hybrid you know being in combination homeschooling your kid with a teacher, visually impaired students or O&M person providing support, homeschooling your kid without one of those people or what we're calling low tech. In some districts, they're just sending out packets. So, um, so we're calling that low tech. Um, and then we ask the teachers and the O&M specialists, think about the kids on your caseload. So let's just hypothetically say I have 20 kids on my caseload and we ask them for percentages of kids in each of those, um, those types of placements. As Excellent. far as, as far as attendance, we have this question, select the statement that best describes your family's participation um, in a, attendance. Um, my, my family attends, um, this is for early childhood, but for preschool, we say my, my child and I, um, and or I, so my, um, person attends almost all the sessions, meetings. My person makes an effort to attend most of the sessions, meetings, but we miss some of them. My family child struggles to attend the session meetings and we miss many of them. My family struggles to attend the sessions, meetings, and we do not often attend. So we're trying to get at attendance. We're asking um, the professionals about why they think the families aren't and the child and family aren't attending? Um, is it because of technology? Is it because the family's working? Is it because they don't have internet access? Is it because um, there's so many children in the home? So we give a, a list of you know potential reasons that they think some of their children have either disappeared from their caseloads or are very inconsistent in their attendance. We've talked anecdotally on this call about um, parents who are blind or visually impaired 
are you trying to single them out specifically in in uh, engagement too? No, we're not trying to single them out um, specifically. We, you know, if um, we had definitely had some parents in um, access and engagement one, and you're going to ask me how many um, themselves had disabilities, um, mm -hmm. you know, everything from a hearing impairment to, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder to, to mental illness. Um, mm -hmm. But we're not specifically um, seeking out parents who are visually impaired by lieu of how we're advertising, you know, through our partners, such as ACB and IRA and Be My Eyes, um, you know, a lot of those folks are, you know, connected with, um, with organizations and, you know, conditions such as um, albinism, for example, you know, tend to right. run in families. Well, I think there, there are a lot of congenital things and, and there are a lot of visually impaired parents who have sighted kids. Um, Absolutely. And, and unfortunately, they're probably not going to be covered in this survey, huh? Well, not, I mean, this particular survey, Access and Engagement 2, is looking at education of children with visual impairment. Um, in the flattening and accessibility, we did ask about, you know, your child's education. And some of those families, you know, had typically sighted children that were participating in education. Some of them had children with visual impairments and some of them had children with other disabilities. You know, one family talked right. about their child who, who had autism and how difficult, you know, a sighted child with autism, but that child still had a disability, how difficult it was for that child to try to attend and, to a screen. Yep. Yep. Any, any hands, Deborah Rick? No, not that I'm finding. Very good. Oh, Paul, I put them to sleep. Oh, so I'm going to ask. So I'm going to ask a more generic question that goes sort of beyond these two surveys. What what do you think we can do, uh, or 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 how do you think we can approach trying to get more data about visual impairment? We all know we need it, but what do you think we need to do? Money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I I want to really give a plug for for both study groups almost everybody who worked on these studies were volunteers. Um, we had people who just wanted to help. Uh, we have a couple graduate students, uh, um, two, two people who are employed and just were like, I want to give back, a retiree. Um, it's just been really amazing. Um, I think one thing we need to do is to pool resources and, and both with the flattening and accessibility and the access and engagement studies, our field, whether we're talking education of children, habilitation, rehabilitation, you know, aging, whether we're talking early intervention, we don't come together very often. It's not that we don't like each other, but we have, you know, lots of barriers and everybody has their priorities and everybody has their policies and none of us have a lot of money. Um, right. So we, we don't come together very often. Here's, here's a way for each individual person, each organization to take a piece of um, the, the data, so to speak, that really ties to them and, and to run with it. And, and by run with it, I mean share it with policymakers, share it with administrators, share it with people outside of the vision biz. You know, we, we know what our issues are, um, but, you know, 
get with your regional transportation group um, and let them know what some of the transportation issues and be able to use this data. Share your story in conjunction with the data will really strengthen it. Um, so can we generate interest, so to speak, outside of vision to then be able to bring some money into the vision field to be able to fund some large scale research? And that's really what I would like to see happen over time. Now you're doing town hall meetings and, and, yes. and the, the first one is this Friday yes. and the next one's on the 29th and the last one's on November 10th. You, you listen uh, well. I, I try. You wrote either. it down. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, but beyond that, uh, are, are there any plans, you know, beyond your doing perhaps a repeat visit to Tuesday topics, are there any plans to put together, um, kind of multi-involving multi, multi groups um, that, that will continue to discuss these issues and perhaps continue to broaden the range of recommendations that are out there? You know, Paul, I, our public policy folks, Stephanie Enyart and Sarah Malier, I know are doing a lot of reaching out um, to, to different groups and different organizations. And I, I hope that not just AFB, I mean, this does, a, you know, AFB took a leadership role in this um, work around COVID-19, but we're, we're not in charge. We're, we're yeah. a player. Um, so if ACB steps into that role of continuing the dialogue, let's get everybody on the ACB, you know, um, boat, so to speak. If it's a mm -hmm. AER, which is our professional organization in visual impairment that sponsors some um, activities, let's all let's all join our friends at AER. Um, I would say at this point, you know, AFB is our, for us personally. We are ours, we're not persons. We're an organization. Our organization is very. Um, interested in, in policy and advocacy on a national level. So we're really making an effort to take the recommendations in both reports and connect with policymakers. They're a little busy right now. I don't know if anybody's noticed, but there's this event on November 3rd. So trying to get in to see their staffers, I'm sure for our folks is a little challenging yeah. until the dust settles in like 2029. But mm -hmm. once the dust settles, you know, um, you know, I see you're right doing it. some policy work. You're right about the event on November 3rd. Tuesday Topics is on then. That's right. That, and everybody's going to be listening to that. I, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I think There's CNN no should definitely focus on you guys. It'd be much more interesting. <laughs> so my question with regard to, uh, with, with regard to uh, moving ahead is, is if, if ACB were to come up with a couple of plans would 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 they work through you to perhaps talk about um, ways of of perhaps creating ongoing discussion groups or recommendations for future surveys that kind of thing? Yeah, um, I would say AFB would like to be at the table, but again, we don't have ownership, um, no. and I I'm really you know I'm very adamant about that both internally in our organization and externally. We took a lead. Um, because Kirk um, and our senior leadership, Kirk Adams, our CEO and our leadership team recognize that, you know, AFB is a thought leader. We focus on, you know, doing policy based on research um, that's data driven. And 
um, that this was, you know, uncharted territory and, and an opportunity where we had the opportunity to make a difference in the lives of people with vision loss. Um, but we're, we're, we're one of the players. I would right. personally like to be involved in, you know, I would take anything right. to my AFB leadership, but um, ACB has just as much ownership as does NFB and does any other B that comes along from BBAs to NOAAs. They don't have a B in them, but I consider <laughs> them a B. Um, you know, anybody does. This is the field study. This, you know, the, anybody so, who's vested in people with visual impairments. Yeah. Just, just in case there are folks out there who aren't familiar with some of these, some of yeah, these acronyms. BBA is the Blind Veterans Association. NOAA is the National Organization on Albinism, I think. Yes, albinism and hypopigmentation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we we um, have a lot of alphabets. <laughs> we do, but but what is significant is is this organize this both of these reports um, have been produced with the sponsorship of a of a pretty large group of organizations and not always organizations that cooperate with each other and, and not always organizations that typically work together. I think the other thing that's significant is um, three or four of the participants are actually profit-making entities um, who, who are actually prepared to continue contribute time and money and... Um, so just and to clarify on the money, just to clarify on the money piece. Um, mm -hmm. So let me just, um, so our collaborators, it's not a financial commitment. It's a, you know, share the information, help, help get the word out about the study. And then when the results are out to use those to advocate for people with visual impairments, mm -hmm. AFB is looking for financial sponsorship for the studies. Um, we, each study is approximately $75,000. We have a document I'm happy to share with anybody um, about that sponsorship. So right now we're looking to raise um, $75,000 for access and engagement too. We haven't raised $75,000 um, at this point. However, the AFB leadership um, has determined that this is so important and so necessary to the field that we're taking a gamble, so to speak, and we're starting that research um, because we're really invested in it in the hopes that we can raise that money to offset um, the costs of, you know, some of the salaries, the report development, you know, our social media campaign and, and you know, things like these town halls that we're doing. But um, mm -hmm. the, the 20 organizations for access and engagement and the 16 organizations and for both access and engagement and um, flattening accessibility, it's 16 and 20. Um, most have not made a financial contribution. Ira did sponsor the Flatten and Accessibility website and the American Printing House for the Blind is sponsoring the Access and Engagement website. Um, so just to be clear on that. Oh, I think it's actually very important because I, I certainly was not aware that that the bulk of the financing for, for both of these surveys came from AFB and they deserve credit for that. Um, Thanks. Uh, I, I, I did not know that, and I certainly haven't given them due credit for it, um, and and they deserve it. Well, thanks. Um, I I will share that with Kirk and and our team. You know, I guess I, I'm I'm probably not the right person to be the spokesperson when it comes to finances. So, <laughs> but, but we are collecting donations. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Excellent. So, we have about 
three to three and a half minutes left. Are there some final thoughts you'd like to leave with folks? Well, if you stuck around for two hours, I really appreciate it. Um, and I hope that you, um, you know, have taken a message away from here that the responsibility lays with all of us. Um, we, we all need to pool together and support individuals with visual impairments from birth to death, basically. And both of these reports give, give each of us the opportunity to um, think about our own stories and what's important, what has challenged us during COVID-19 and to reach out, whether it's writing an editorial for the newspaper, whether it's speaking to your local Lions Club, who I'm sure is meeting on Zoom, whether it's you know sitting down and writing a letter to your school board or your bus company, whether it's contacting the company that you know designs the telehealth app that your particular doctor is using and letting them know what the issues are with that telehealth app um, for specifically for you, but then showing them the report as well we each can make a difference and we must pool together or this is just going to be a blip as opposed to a catalyst to really affect change. I think that's excellent. Ms. Penny, thank you so much for being here. Um, do you want to give folks your email once more? Just sure. They'd like to write you a note. I would love them to write me a note, Paul, um, because I'm really getting tired of getting Viagra commercials. Um, <laughs> so my email address is P. Rosenblum, so R-O-S-E-N-B-L-U-M at A-F-B dot org. And you can reach out to me at any time about either of the studies or, or other things related to research or ideas for funding um, or anything else that I can be of assistance to you with. Excellent. Miss Penny, Miss Debbie, and Mr. Rick, thank you very much for all your help this evening. And Miss Penny, particularly you, you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you for putting up and with me for two hours. Um, so let me talk just a smidge about the next two Tuesday topics, because uh, one of them is, is actually one that should have happened last week. So Dr. Joel Snyder will be coming to talk about the history of audio description next week. He'll probably plug his book. Uh, which is an interesting read. I encourage people to take to take a look at that. It's it's on Bard and it's also on Bookshare. And then the week after, on the third of November, this exciting day, I'd like to try an experiment, but its success will depend on all of you. I would like to use Tuesday topics on the third of November to explore the voting experiences of blind and visually impaired people throughout the country. So even if you voted early. Uh, even e even if you, uh, whether you did in person or mail ballot, I would love to hear from you on the 3rd of November when we will get an opportunity to talk together about what the collective experience of blind and visually impaired voters is in this very important event that we have coming up on the 3rd of November, which of course is not Tuesday topics, this is in fact our election. We're having an election? <laughs> oh my god i didn't know paul <laughs> i i'm sorry i i had to break it to you miss betty so every i better go watch all the commercials that unfortunately are accessible because they just keep paying the same and, commercials and over and over again <laughs> and they say nothing <laughs> yeah um ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for tuning in on tuesday topics i think our subject tonight has demonstrated that we don't know enough about ourselves 
But the more we know about ourselves, the more likely we are to understand who we are as a population. Thank you so much. Thank you all.